0: One of the main features, I think, of modern American life is that we love, as a people, to keep our options open. And this actually makes a lot of things pretty challenging. This is why dating can be difficult, because you, you just think, oh, if I commit to this person, then what about, what if there's something better? What if I swipe again and there's someone better there I could find? And we love the idea of just having options and keeping the options open at all time. It makes it a challenge with our calendar. You say, hey, let's go do this thing Friday night. And I'm like, okay, I'll do that Friday night. But maybe I won't. What if Friday night comes and I don't feel like doing that thing and I want to do something else? I would rather just keep my options open. We do this with careers, with friends, with, with dating relationships. We do this all over the place. We love the idea of just uh, uh, possibilities. We love the idea of possibilities. I, I could do this. Maybe I could do this. I don't know. I don't want to tie myself down. I don't want to commit to that. I want to keep my options open because we're very excited by possibility. We're excited about, we're excited by could be, maybe, what if, we could do this. Like, we love that kind of stuff. But what happens when it feels like you're out of options? Well, that's terrifying to us, right? Like... That feels sort of hemmed in, sort of uh, it's, it's a scary thing to feel like, uh-oh, I'm out of options and desperation kicks in and we start doing the what if thing, but about all the wrong things. We're like, man, what if I'm stuck here? What if this never gets any better? What if she doesn't change? What if we can never move? What if that job doesn't actually come up? What if the education doesn't come through for me? Like all of these things, we get worried when we feel like we're out of options and we get desperate. This is a particularly bad feeling when it comes upon you and you are confident you're doing the right thing. Like, if you feel like, man, God has called me without a shadow of a doubt. I'm supposed to walk down this road, but I'm stuck, and I feel like I'm out of options. And then you start thinking, like, did, did I hear God correctly? Did God abandon me in this moment? Is this a, you know, this seems like a disaster is about going to happen. Like, what's going on here? And we have all these sort of existential angsty sort of questions, it's a hard, it's a hard feeling when you feel like you're out of options, and I want to talk about that dynamic today, because all of us have been there at some point, and all of us will be there at some point, where where you get desperate, where you feel like you're at the end of the line, at the end of your rope, and and you want you want a way out, but you don't see any options, and you you can't even generate any options. And and to explain that to us, I want to tell you a, a read to you an account of something that happened in the ancient world, and this is really a key story in the history of the Jewish people. And it's really just a key story in the ancient world of something profound that happened that really changed the course of the entire Israelite and the Hebrew, the Jewish people, it changed the course of their lives. Um, and and I want to kind of get into that because I think it's going to show us what it's like when your back's against the wall and you feel like you're out of options. What what can you do? And I want us to look at it in its context and understand some of the history around it. But then I want to talk about how it relates to us and what we do here and now and how what we can do when we feel like we are uh, out of options so we've been in this series called, um the god who helps and we're talking about how god how god helps us and uh, we've been looking at specifically the Exodus account of Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for 430 years, and at the end of that, God uses Moses to approach Pharaoh, and they have this encounter, and uh, Moses says, Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh's like, no, I'm not going to do that, and then God brings all these plagues through, through Moses. He brings these plagues onto Egypt, and Different things happen. The last of which is the firstborn in Egypt die. The firstborn children and the and the livestock and all that. And that's a that's a rough thing. We talked about that last week. Um and then uh, Pharaoh says, fine, you can go. And the Israelites are cut loose from slavery in Egypt. And they head out as a people, a million people. They, they head out with their belongings, and they grab everything they can. And they head out away from, from Egypt, and they start wandering basically through the desert, that part of the world, uh, a very desert situation. They, they, they wander there, and um, they end up being uh, out in the desert like tent camping, as a whole community of people, so it's basically like Burning Man, but without the funky art. Okay, so they're just out there. It's dusty, it's gross, and they're out there, and they're following God around. God is leading them with this pillar of fire at night and this cloud of smoke during the day, and they follow that around and go wherever God leads them to. And eventually, as they're going, it, it takes them to the edge of the Red Sea. And once they get, uh, you know, they've been wandering. Once they get up to that sea, uh, they have a, a problem, uh, and I want to I want to read it to you to see. What happens? Uh, Exodus chapter 14, we'll pick it up with verse 1. It says this Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Ha between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. And this is what he said is going to happen. Listen to this For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will pardon Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So they camp right next to the Red Sea, and God says, go there. This is going to happen. And while while you're there, what's going to happen is uh, Pharaoh's army is going to come after you, and I'm going to get glory over him again, and and, uh, you're going to see something pretty incredible go on there. Okay, so Let's talk about the history for a second. Archaeologists and, and scholars of this believe that the event that we're talking about happened in 1446 B.C. Now, that's awfully specific, I realized, for such a long time ago. But there's some pretty good reasons why they think it happened. One of them is that they pin Pharaoh, this particular Pharaoh, as Pharaoh Thutmosis III. So, name the Pharaohs you've ever heard of. Okay, good, all right. I'll spot you, King Tut. Can we do King Tut? There was a song about it in the 70s. Okay, I'll spot you, Tutankhamun. The rest of them, okay. Thutmose III is the best, uh, is, is the best, guess of, of what pharaoh this is in the Exodus. And Phil the III is an interesting choice because he was a, a very arrogant guy and, and bragged about his military prowess and all that. And so he went out and he fought battles every springtime for 17 years in a row. He went invading and conquesting and you know, trying to take other lands. 17 years in a row and then unexplainably he just stops and never fights again. Like for some reason he just kind of got over it and, and wasn't into it anymore. Um, and so that's one of the things that points to perhaps this Pharaoh being the Pharaoh of, of the Exodus. Also, I, w- I want to make this disclaimer. Um, there is some debate on scholars about when the Exodus happened, 1446. Others put a, a more recent date, recent of 1237, somewhere around that. And so if you see something that says that the Pharaoh of the Exodus was Pharaoh Ramses, which if you watch the Prince of Egypt or some Christian Bale film or something like that around uh, around the M- Moses. Uh, it'll it'll have Ramses as the Pharaoh. Uh, there's there's some pretty good reasons to think that that's not the Pharaoh of the Exodus, uh, but that's kind of the Hollywood Pharaoh. So if you want to go Hollywood Pharaoh, you can go Ramses. But if you want to go like maybe more historically accurate, we'll go to Thutmose the Third. Um, so moving on, let's let's continue reading. Verse five it says, "When the king of Egypt was told." The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahirath in front of Baal Zephon. Pharaoh says, oh, dang it, we we just let our slave labor force go. And, you know, how quickly we forget the plagues and all that. We're like, we just let them go. And they're out there in the wilderness. Let's just go get them. They're wandering out there. They have nowhere to go. We're just going to go crush them. And so all of... Pharaoh's army, his chariots, his horses, you know, basically these trained killers start barreling down towards this tent camping group next to the sea of the Israelites. And if you're an Israelite in that situation, you are going to freak out, right? In fact, listen to what it says. uh, Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes Now, on the one hand, I want to be like, man, this is a whiny bunch of people. They've just been saved by God and delivered out of Egypt. And then they see the chariots coming at them and they're like, hey, uh, are you trying to kill us out here in the desert? Why? We could have just stayed Egypt and, and served there and just died there and that would have been okay. Um, and think about this. Uh, why, why would they behave that way? Well, For one thing, their national identity as a people is as slaves. They've done this for 400 years, so it's all they've ever known. So if you pull anybody out of something they've been used to for generations, it it becomes a a, a shot on your identity. Who are we? What are we doing? And so they don't know what to do, and they're not trained killers. They don't know how to wage war. They've got an army of trained killers coming at them, and they're kind of freaking out. And they have something which kind of sounds a little bit like, if you've heard the term Stockholm Syndrome, where people who have been made captive start to bond with their captors and start to identify with the people that are holding them hostage. Um, they, they sound a little bit like that. Like, oh, I know it was terrible in Egypt, but at least, you know, at least we had meals and, and, and uh, yeah, we were slaves, but at least we had meals and a place to live and, and all that. And so they, they start getting these feelings of remorse or whatever because they think uh, they're going to just die right there. Moses speaks to them. Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I love that. I love that. He says, don't worry about this. God has got this. And then, if you follow it along next, Moses stretches out his arms at the Red Sea. This is the crazy part, right? Moses stretches out his arms and the wind blows and the sea rolls up like a scroll and the israelites walk through on the bottom of the sea on dry ground now that's a that's a wild thing it's a supernatural thing it's not not a, a normal thing but as they get across the sea pharaoh's army chases them into that across that dry ground as they get across look what happens verse 26 let's let's pick it up there then the lord said to moses stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Now, it actually doesn't say that Pharaoh himself dies here. It just says his army does. And so, his army goes into the water and into, on this dry ground, and the water closes up, and they are all are, are washed away and, and God sweeps them away. Uh, this this group of of trained killers. Now, there's modern skepticism we have about this entire story, right? I mean, this, this sounds like myth and fairy tales and all that kind of stuff. We have a lot of skepticism around this. And the reason we have a lot of skepticism about, that, about this is we are 21st century Americans and we can be no other, right? And we've talked about this before. We have a post-enlightenment, scientific, empirical, rationalist, like I can't prove it unless you, know, you can touch it with its senses, unless it happens in a naturally occurring scientific world. These are the things that I trust most. These are the things I believe in. And that is a peculiar thing to our time and our people and our culture in the Western world. Uh, historically, people have not always felt that way. But this is the way we look at the world now. And, and, and it's so um, obvious to us, it's so just the way it is that we, we think it's like anybody who doesn't believe the way we do on this kind of thing is ignorant. Like they didn't know, they, they, they believed in, you know, witchcraft and whatever. We know better um, So we're we're not really open to the idea of something supernatural. This is not a natural occurrence. This doesn't happen every day. This is a one-time shot, weird, supernatural thing. And it can be very hard for us to believe it because we have this bias as we read. So can I prove to you that the Red Sea rolled up uh, like a scroll and and the people walked through on dry ground? I can't. In fact there's not a lot of fossil evidence left for that kind of thing. That You don't leave fossil evidence when you roll up a, a sea like that and then it comes back together. So there's nothing I could point to to say like, oh yeah, they have in this, in this museum, they have, I don't know, a rolled up, piece of the sea. I, like you can't, you can't, I can't prove it to you that way. But I think there are some good reasons to believe it happened. And like so many things in history, you can't look at the thing. You have to look at things that are around the thing and go, no, something there definitely happened that caused all of these other things that are around it. Um, a good principle to remember is that the absence of evidence doesn't mean the evidence of absence. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. So consider a couple things about this. Number one, there are no Egyptian records of this happening, okay? So you go, well, it's written about in the Bible, but the Egyptians, which was a big civilization, powerful civilization, they didn't write it down. Well, there's a reason they didn't write it down, and there's a reason ancient civilizations didn't write things down. Do you know how we in our culture, when, some, when you're out, you know, having a meal or you're with friends or whatever, and someone said, you're like, oh, I'm doing this thing, you should be here, this is so awesome, and your friends will say, pics or it didn't happen, right? Hey, you better show me a picture of that if I'm gonna believe that you're really there, or it didn't happen. Well, in the ancient world, what they had was hieroglyphics, or it didn't happen. Like, they had a similar belief, hieroglyphics, pictographs, pictographs, or it didn't happen is what they believed. They literally believed, e- Egyptians and other ancient civilizations, hey, if you don't write it down, it'll be as if it never happened. And so, they didn't write it down, of what went on here, this destruction. Also, ancient civilizations weren't in the habit of writing down just their defeats anyway. If you get crushed, you just don't write that stuff down. And then there's the other considerations. I mentioned Thutmose III who was in some ways the Alexander the Great of the of the Egyptian world who brags about how great he is and then he just stops fighting. Why did he stop fighting? He'd gone out every year to fight battles. Why does he stop? Maybe because his entire army had been wiped out. Maybe because his country had been devastated. His son Amenhotep II only fights like two battles in his entire rule. There's a couple other things interesting that we do know from archaeology. In 1887, near the ancient city in Egypt of Amarna, they found this dig, and they found what are known as the Amarna tablets. And these tablets were these big tablets of stone they found surviving from antiquity. And on these tablets are letters that were written. And what's really interesting about these tablets, they date them from about early 1400 BC to about 1330, uh, what was really interesting on those tablets is they find information about an invasion that's going on. So let me give you just a quick timeline. Let me just show you this on the screen. It's a bit wordy, but the 18th dynasty, okay? We're talking Egyptian uh, pharaohs of the Exodus. Um, Thutmose is kind of in the middle of the, the thing there. Thutmose is the first, second, and then towards the bottom here. Thutmose is the third, the pharaoh of the Exodus in 1446. Um, had a couple wives there. His first son Amenemhat, firstborn son, died in the tenth plague of, that we talked about last week. And then Amenhotep the second, second son, uh, who comes who comes after Thutmose the third. So this kind of puts it in the timeline. If you go after this. Uh, after Moses, so the Israelites go wander in the desert for 40 years. So you go 40 years from 1446, you're now at 1406 B.C. And around 1406 B.C. is when you have the Amarna tablets uh, from 1406 to about 1330. And what they record is in the land of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel, the, the Amarna tablets are letters written from Egyptian officials in Canaan back to Egypt saying, get this, The letters say, hey, um, there's people attacking us from the wilderness, and they're they're attacking these cities. You need to send us some help. These are letters written from Israel area, Canaan, to Egypt, to the Pharaoh saying, please send some help. We're getting attacked here. This coincides with the... Bible timeline is saying that in 1446, they go across the Red Sea, 40 years in the wilderness, and then they go into Canaan, into Jericho, and then eventually into Jerusalem. There's actually some evidence of this. Oh, here's an example of the Amarna tablets. This is what one of them says, from Mabhadah, mayor of Biblos, Semur, your garrison city, this is writing back to Egypt, he says, your garrison city have joined the, this is what they called them, the Habiru, like Hebrew, the Habiru, and you have nothing. Send a large force of archers. Now, there's like 380 of these Amarna tablets, and many of them say things like this. Hey, the Habiru are here. Habiru means wanderer. So, the, they don't give them a nationality. They just say, the wanderers are here. Uh, send some archers, send some help. And, and Pharaoh sends nothing. He never sends help. Do you know Why? Maybe because he doesn't have an army anymore. He's like, I can't help you. And and when they're like, hey, the wanderers, these Habiru here, and the Pharaoh's like, uh-uh, I'm not messing with them again. We've done this a couple times. I'm not doing it. And so there's some interesting things there, just in archaeology, that, that don't say the sea rolled back and they walked through on dry land, but there's some interesting things going on around it. That, that's, that suggests that maybe there's some truth to this. So why am I telling you all that? Well, some of you are history nerds, right, like me. And you're like, oh, that's really interesting. I like, I like history. But I do want to give you some context to it. I can't give you a definitive evidence of the Exodus that we're talking about. But I do believe there are good reasons to believe it. The Bible is trustworthy on some of these historical details. And if it's trustworthy on historical details, maybe it's also trustworthy on the supernatural details. So the Israelites feel like in that moment, they're out of options. They're in between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. They're like, we have nowhere to go. What are we gonna do? And I wanna go back to what Moses says to them because I think this is key for all of us who feel like we're out of options. Moses said to the people, number one, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. There's a couple ideas in there that I think are key for us. Number one, he says, fear not. When you're out of options, don't just be afraid. I've heard it said that there are two core emotions for people, love and fear. Those are the heart of everything. I know you can name other emotions, but they all kind of trace themselves back. Your anger has fear underneath. Your sadness has some fear underneath. Like, love and fear are kind of at the heart. This is why in the New Testament uh, we're told that perfect love casts out fear. It kind of sets them in opposition to one another. And fear has this way of paralyzing us. You're standing there. You feel like you're out of options. And fear starts putting all the what-if scenarios in your head. What if this doesn't work out? What if she doesn't come back? What if I don't get that job? What if the education loan falls through? What if the house doesn't sell? And that is the, the, the fear thing that gets inside us. We go down that very dark road of the what ifs. Your boss gets mad at you one day, and, and you start going, what if I'm fired? What if then I can't pay my mortgage. And then you kind of play that scenario out and suddenly you imagine yourself living in a cardboard box down by the river, like warming your hands by the fire of a 50 gallon drum while you're wearing fingerless gloves. And you're sitting there like, this is where this is gonna go because the boss was angry at me today, right? Like, you know what that's like in your head? Am I the only one who does this? All right? We, we do that kind of stuff. We, we, we give into the what ifs and the fear becomes paralyzing. The Israelites did that too. Man, we're going to die out here. And Moses addresses that directly, and he says, don't be afraid. Now, one of the challenges with that is telling someone not to be afraid doesn't really work, right? It's like telling someone not to be mad or don't be sad or whatever. Does that ever, ever work? I could tell you from 20 years of marriage, it never works with my wife when I tell her not to be mad. Never, ever, ever does that work. Don't be mad. they're just going to be mad. I mean, you just can't, like, don't feel. Like, now. I'm, I'm pretty much feeling over here, uh, Got a lot of feeling going on. Well, don't. Oh, thanks. That's helpful. But, but, but with fear, man, it's, it's challenging because um, when you're afraid, you stop generating options. See, we like to live and we live in the space of possibilities. It kind of looks like this. Like, hey, I could do anything right now. I could go anywhere. I've got options. But when we get afraid, it starts looking more like this oh, this is down. I got one one way to go, and it's all downhill from here. You know what that's like? You know what that's like in your head? That downward spiral, have you you experienced that? You move from a place of abundance, I have options, to a place of scarcity. I have no options. You move from a place of hope to a place of fear. We all all do this, and we, we end up despairing. So how do we stay in that abundance mindset? Well, Moses doesn't just say, do not fear. He says some other things. He says, do, fear not. He says, stand firm. Stand firm in, in, in where you're at. There's so much in our culture about identity right now. It's like, it's like the hotness in, in politics and just personal relationships, identity, because people are kind of, Wondering like, who am I, and where do I stand, and what do I stand for and and how do I define me and, and who gets to define me and all of these kind of things and we have a lot going on in our culture around identity, and I think for these Israelites, identity was a problem also because their identity had been we are slaves, and now they 're free. the only thing you 've ever known you 're not that anymore now, who are you they don 't have their own land they 're technically a nation, but a nation with no land, no You know they've got some customs that keep them together, but they're wanderers, right? And they're they're sitting there going like, "Man, who are we? We don't even know." And so Moses says to them, "Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Like stand firm, not just in the on the ground that you're standing on, because we're going to leave that and go through the sea. But stand firm in who you are. Your identity is you're a child of God." And and man, I. I don't know how they forget this. You know, they just witnessed the 10 plagues, incredible things that happened in, in, in Egypt. And none of that seems to matter when you're facing an army. You, yeah, God did something great for you a couple of weeks ago, but right now it looks like we're going to die and it doesn't matter and God has left us. And they're having a bit of an identity crisis and they're wondering if God's going to deliver or not. I think we have an identity crisis when we start running out of options, when life is not working out the way we wanted. I wanted that spouse. I wanted to be married by now. I wanted to have kids and by now, and it hasn't happened. I wanted to have that job and that career. I wanted to be living in that place. I thought life was going to work out differently. And you start questioning who you are. Well, maybe I'm not the person I thought I was. Maybe God doesn't deliver like I thought he would. I thought God and I were tight, but he has not given me the things that I wanted, and it becomes an identity crisis for us. Um, and, and the challenge is if we set up our identity and we tie it to any of those things, we are gonna be devastated when we don't get those things. If our identity is, I am a dad, well, if, I'm, if I can't become a dad, then I'm gonna be crushed by that. If my, identity, if my da- identity is, you know, I am this type of career and something in that career doesn't work out, we're gonna be crushed by that. Can we locate our identity in, I am a child of God. This is who I am, first and foremost. And then let everything else flow from there. I am God's child. I am, you are, we are. Can, can, you, can you start there for your identity and say, this is who I am. Now let me figure out all, all the rest. And can I be firm and solid in that place and just trust God to work out the rest of the stuff? Which is why the final piece, uh, Moses says to them, fear not, stand firm. And he says, trust that God will fight for you. You have to trust that God will fight for you. When things aren't working out and you feel like you're out of options, you have the the things you can do are despair and start doing this, right, and spiraling out, or you can move back to a place of possibilities and you can trust God to work it out. And you can use it as an opportunity even when it doesn't look good. Even the stuff that doesn't look good can be an opportunity for you to build up trust. My experience with God as I've grown in my faith is that a relationship with God is not, you know, I serve, I give, I sing sometimes, I pray, I read. Like, those things are good. And I'm a fan of those things. But growth in the relationship looks like growth in trust. It looks like less fear, more faith. Less despair, more trust. This is what it, it looks like to be in a relationship with God. We start trusting him and believing that uh, he can do things for us and in us. Um, and, and I think sometimes we're tested or we have trials or we have hard things to deal with because it teaches us to trust. Like it's easy to believe that you will do something if you've never done it. You know, like if you, if you come up with some scenario, hey, Chris, how would you behave if this happened? I'll be like, I would totally do this and this and this, right, and we'd have this idea of what I would do if I was in a particular situation. But until I'm in that situation, I don't truly know what's in me. I don't truly know how I would behave if I were you or if I were in, in your shoes or if I were in that spot right now, I don't know until I'm put in that situation and it's tested. We don't know the level of trust and faith we have until that thing gets pushed on a little bit. I ran the Tough Mudder years ago. Anybody ever run the Tough Mudder? Or the Spartan? Pretty fit, pretty fit group in here, yeah. Um, now I, I, so I ran the Tough Mudder years ago. And um, they, uh, so it, it was, um, I did it twice, which was, I always tell people, was one time too many. Uh, but I, I ran the Tough Mudder because, and it was like a 12 miles of running through mud, and there's like 20 obstacles of like climbing over stuff and lifting things, and you had to run up a ski slope or walk up a ski slope, and you ran through fire, and there were pits of ice water, and there, were, and at one point you got electrocuted, um, and <laughs> I'm really selling it, aren't I? Uh, it's so fun, so fun. Um, but here, so why does anyone do that? Because I, I read an article about the people who founded that company, and I was like, why would anyone run that thing? Why would you sign up for that? You pay money to go do that. Um, well, it's easy. I know why I did it. I want to know if I could do it. I can say, oh, yeah, I could totally run 12 miles and do the monkey bars. I could be electrocuted. I could jump in a, you know, a, a dumpster full of ice water. I could do that. No problem. You don't know until you, until you try it. Like, you just won't quite know if it's in you or not until you take a shot at it. I was going to show you a picture of this, uh, of me getting electrocuted, but I didn't have any pictures. Unfortunately, Greg Sorber did have a picture of it, and he sent it to me, so I thought I'd let you see that, what that was like. Greg's face is worse than mine, I think, but we're both, um, yeah, see, the people in the back of the picture, they look all happy because they haven't been shocked yet. They're, they haven't quite got to the the, the wires. Um, yeah, so... Uh, you do things like that. You you stretch yourself to go, do I have it in me? Um, Can I really do it? And once you do that, your trust becomes a little more firm and more real. And I think when we're out of options, when we're in pain, when we're struggling, when we are in those what-if scenarios, this is an opportunity to find out what we're made of. It's an opportunity to find out, do you have it in you? Can you trust, even when things are disintegrating, around you. When you are out of options, this is your moment to grow in your faith in God and, and to trust him. And I look, I know that's hard. I know that's hard. I was listening to something yesterday and this guy was talking about basically how he doesn't trust anybody. And I think that's probably true for a lot more of us than not. I say trust God, you're like, Maybe. I barely trust a spouse or I barely trust my brother or my kids or my family or friends. Or like, I kind of trust those people, but like at the end of the day, trust for me is just really hard. And all these things I've experienced makes trust really difficult for me. And so when you say trust God, I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. I, I get that. But he's calling us and giving us opportunities. And when we feel like we're out of options, this is a chance to step up and go, I'm not going to give in to fear this time. I'm not going to spiral. I'm going to stand firm in my identity. I am a child of God, and I'm going to trust God that he's going to work this thing out as he always has done in the past. Let's pray. God, may we be people who are not ruled by fear, who don't live um, afraid, who, who grow in our capacity to trust and to follow you. Um, God, I, I thank you for the example left of the Israelites who were afraid by the Red Sea and they felt like they're out of options. And I pray that we learn from them and know that, yeah, you don't do miraculous every single day, but you, you do miraculous and, um, and that uh, you, you have the power to change things for us. So, God, may we put our faith in you, our, our, our trust in you, Um, to generate some new options and to bring us out of a place of scarcity to a place of abundance. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.